0: the talk this evening is called uh, In Praise of Ignorance and really what I want to look at is um, is the flip side of questioning and we've spent now maybe a couple of days asking ourselves, what is this? and each time that we do that, we're tacitly saying, I don't know what this is. I don't know. If you, the, in order to ask a question, you have to acknowledge your ignorance. You can't question without ignorance, even in the most trivial example. Where is the railway station in Newton Abbot? I can ask that station sincerely because I'm ignorant of where the railway station is. Otherwise, there'd be no purpose or meaning in asking that question. We may not be comfortable with the word ignorance because, let's face it, in Buddhism, ignorance has a pretty bad press we might prefer to say unknowing or not knowing. In other words, when I ask, what is this, I'm also acknowledging that I don't know what this is. Now, curiously, I think that this way of thinking about questioning and not knowing goes to the heart of what the Buddha called Samadhiti, uh, usually translated as right view. I prefer, perhaps in English, to say a true vision or an authentic outlook, something more like that. View, unfortunately, always suggests an opinion, uh, a position. What is your view on this? What is your view on that? And the Buddha is kind of ambivalent around this. He often is quite dismissive of what he calls views and opinions. But in other contexts, he talks of how ditti, which is translated as view or opinion, can also be samaditi, True view. Right view, but In English, the word view is complicated. Maybe we should stay with simply something like vision. Or in French, you'd say say, un regard. Le regard philosophique. A, A philosophical perspective or attitude, perhaps. So in what sense is what is this and I don't know, what's that got to do with samadhiti? What does that have to do with this true vision? Which is the first step of the Eightfold Path. I'm going to start by looking at a sutta, a discourse, in which the Buddha addresses precisely this question. And it's called the Kachana Gota Sutta, the discourse to a man called Kachana Gota, the one from the Kachana clan, literally. We don't know really who this person was, but he appears and he asks uh, to uh, Gautama, You say true vision. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by true vision? And I'll read the answer. By and large, Kachana, says Gautama, this world relies on the duality of it is and it is not. But one who sees the arising of the world as it happens with complete understanding that person has no sense of it is not about the world. And one who sees the ceasing of the world as it happens with complete understanding has no sense of it is about the world. Now what The Buddha's getting at here really is the effect of the very structure of our language, the very grammar of our language, to have a very strong influence on how we think of the world to be. And although this might sound a bit philosophical, at the root of our sense of who I am, of what the world is, of what this, that, or the other thing might be is the idea either that it exists or it doesn't exist. It either is or it is not. And for Aristotle, for example, this uh, is expressed in the idea of the law of the excluded middle. Something either is a or is not a. There's no third alternative. The Buddha, however, begs to disagree. The living in the duality of it is and it is not is uh, precisely uh, what a true vision leaves behind, goes beyond. And it does this not by some kind of theoretical argument but through observing the way life happens. And again, in classical Buddhist uh, parlance, we see things coming into being, we see things arising, and we see things passing away. The more that we pay attention to this fluid and this contingent quality of life, the less we are able to insist that this thing is and that thing is not. Because life as it unfolds is somehow seamless. In other words, there's not a point, a cut-off point. Let's take, for example, a flower. A flower starts, let's say, with a seed, and the seed produces a little sprout, and the sprout produces the stalk, and the stalk produces leaves, and then eventually a geranium appears. But um, there was no point at which suddenly the geranium existed, the previous moment in which it hadn't existed. The geranium somehow morphs through um, a process of constant uh, unfolding into what, for a while, we would call a geranium. And then it follows likewise the law of decay and withering and fading. And then in the winter, there's no trace of it anymore. And language, of course, thinks of it in terms of, well, we had a seed, one thing. We have a geranium, another thing. And this thing produces that thing. But when you pay attention to the actual process itself, you find that you have an unbroken, undivisible continuity. There's no breaks. In other words, it's concepts and words and language that impose these neat divisions and borders on life. And of course that's terribly useful. If it weren't, if we didn't have language I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you now. That This is part also of what it means to be human but language is a double-edged sword. It can free us into thinking differently, into imagining alternatives but also it can keep us uh, uh, trapped Wittgenstein famously said that the purpose of philosophy is to free the mind from the bewitchment of language. Bewitchment is this capacity language has to somehow uh, persuade us that there are things out there like geraniums and seeds, and they're quite different from one another. There's different people. There's different this, different that. And they're all somehow existing in their own right, distinct and unique and separate from everything else. But the person who sees the arising or observes how things come about, it's not possible at that moment to say that the thing uh, doesn't exist. And likewise, when we see things fading away and disappearing, we can no longer say they are they exist. Existence and non-existence are useful but very tentative and very sketchy uh, ways of engaging with the actuality of experience. And this way this fundamental commitment to is and is not um, I think finds a very good example um, in another dialogue this time with a man called Vachagota, who comes to the Buddha and says, is there a self? Same word, Ati, there is. Is there a self? Buddha remains silent. The man asks, then is there not a self? Nati. Buddha remains silent. And then he explains that he refused to answer these questions because if it said the self exists, that would have led the questioner into what he calls eternalism, a fixed view that that is something, that the self is a thing, it's a truth, it's, it's out there in its own right. But if he'd answered uh, there is no self, then uh, that would have led the questioner into nihilism, that there's no continuity, there's no uh, causality that connects what I do now to what happens to me later, what happens to others later. So the Buddha remains silent. He won't get drawn into, it. Do, it does it exist or does it not exist? He remains silent. And this silence is, I think, a silence founded on a sense of um, his observations and his uh, way of attending to how experience constantly is unfolding and changing and fading and coming about again and we don't need to hold on to things the other problem from a Zen perspective by being convinced in the existence of something um, we've already weakened our capacity to question it to say what is this is actually to um, not assume that it exists or doesn't exist we're basically puzzled and curious we want to investigate our lives to have this ongoing inquiry but this attachment to is and is not has further consequences and the second uh, Paragraph of the text says, by and large, this world is bound to its prejudices and habits. But one with true vision does not get caught up in the habits, fixations, prejudices, or biases of the mind. Such a person is not fixated on myself. Such a person does not doubt that when something is occurring, it's occurring. When it's happening, it's happening. And when it's come to an end, it's come to an end. His knowledge, or that person's knowledge, is independent of others. In other words, it's uh, that person's own understanding now. It's not a theory, it's not a belief. So... Although the idea of being and not being might sound terribly abstract, in this uh, text, at least, it's seen to be what underpins things that are less abstract, our prejudices, our habitual views, our fixations, our biases, all of those things that we're somehow intellectually, ideologically, maybe even biologically committed to as being real and true. So, in the light of this particular teaching, samaditi, this true vision, has nothing at all to do with having the correct understanding of the nature of reality. It has to do with uh, a capacity to let go of this binary is, is not, yes and no, being and non-being, And one way to do that, a way that we're all familiar with, is to open up what's happening as a question. To say, what is this? Rather than to uh, say, this is the true nature of mind or something. This is reality. Instead of affirming, we throw everything into question. And this, I think, is very much at the heart of of Chan practice. But as we can see here, there's something very similar going on in this early Buddhist text. And, curiously, this text I've just um, explained to you, or tried to explain to you, Um, is the only text that's cited by name by Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna, the founder of the philosophy of of emptiness. For Nagarjuna, emptiness is not some ultimate reality that we, we understand one day. But emptiness is a letting go of views, it's a letting go of opinions. If you question what is this you are in that moment letting go of views if you really are a question for yourself and you and you address yourself and feel yourself that way it's not possible really to then hold on to any conviction that i am this or i am that or this is who you know this is the real me we don't know we ask what is this? And this, I feel, is also what is meant by the phrase from Hueneng, who talks of the mind having nowhere to rest. What this points to, I feel, is the mind uh, stops uh, constantly trying to define things, to, to state what is the case with this or that. But instead is willing to just be open to the fact that life unfolds as something that, in a very real way, is mysterious. And we don't know what it is. We really don't know. And that not knowing is not a failure, but in many ways I think that not knowing is touching a deeper level of honesty within ourselves you know when you have a conversation, particularly you know, a lively conversation with, with friends or colleagues or whatever, um, how quickly you can get caught up into being convinced that I'm right here and they're wrong. And getting into a very uh, you know, tense and sometimes angry and sometimes very uh, stubborn state of mind might be about something quite trivial but it's interesting to notice how easily we get, uh, we get attached and we get identified with and we get locked into a particular view, an opinion. It makes us feel somehow right, somehow justified. What we're doing in this practice is to question that and to try to recover a certain innocence, a certain honesty, a certain transparency, and also an, an, a, a passionate inquiry to somehow get to grips with what our life is presenting us with right now. In Prior to uh, Nagarjuna, prior even probably to the gota Sutta, we have Early texts in the, the Sutta Nipata, which is a very, a, a, a very, a very uh, early account or early collection of texts. And there's a verse there which says that the sage or, or the, the wise person lets go of one position without taking another, he's not defined by what he knows nor does he join a dissenting faction. He assumes no view at all." Now what we've looked at so far, these Buddhist texts, the Zen practice, has perhaps for us a very Asian, Oriental, Buddhist, Eastern kind of feel to it. But we also find that this current of thinking and being uh, was present in ancient Greece as well, particularly with the, stu- with the, the skeptics. Uh, Skepsis in Greek means to question, means to investigate. The skeptics were those who refused to just take the evidence either of their senses or of reason for granted, but constantly put everything into question. Skepticism today often means you know, just being unwilling to believe anything. But the real meaning of skepticism, of the skeptical practice, is this, um, is this commitment to constant ongoing inquiry and questioning very much like what we're doing here. Very, very similar. One person who tried to practice the philosophy of skepticism um, in the 16th century uh, in France was Michel de Montaigne. Um, I'm sure you're all familiar with Montaigne, uh, best known as an essayist, as um, a person who retreated to his, the solitude of his tower on his manorial estate, resigned to his duties in the world, and dedicated to him, himself to a life of inquiry and study and philosophy and so forth. I've spent a lot of time reading and studying Montaigne over the last few years, and um, I've recently written uh, quite a lot about him, that will appear in my next book. So let me share some of Montaigne's perspective on this practice of questioning. Um, I'm going to start with a passage where Montaigne describes his understanding of philosophy. He says, "'Astonishment is the foundation of all philosophy.'" Inquiry is the way it advances and ignorance is its goal. (laughs) Now the idea of astonishment is the foundation of all philosophy is of course an idea taken from Socrates. You find this in one of the Platonic dialogues where Socrates uh, acknowledges that philosophy begins with our capacity to be surprised and astonished by the fact that anything is happening at all. It's a sense of wonder, a sense of uh, amazement that this is happening. Now for us it sounds strange that that's the foundation of philosophy because today philosophy is very often thought of as a rather abstract intellectual discipline in universities, we don't immediately think of its foundation being astonishment. Even in Montaigne's time, um, philosophy had become what he calls a dry therefore-ism, just an endless argumentation. Whereas for Montaigne, he says there's nothing more sexy than philosophy. So when we go back to the Greeks, we find the practice of philosophy looks much more like a kind of Buddhist meditation or a Zen koan than it does compared to what you might study in a university course on philosophy today. So astonishment is the foundation just as it is the foundation for what we're doing here. Inquiry is the way it, invi- it advances. You know, Questioning, relentlessly, passionately. What is this? And the goal is not that suddenly we get to the certainty, oh, this is what it is. But actually we come to be completely at ease in our ignorance. We don't know. Now, Montaigne realizes that this is a bit bit of an odd thing to say. So he goes on and says that there is a kind of ignorance that is powerful and generous and no less honorable or courageous than knowledge. So he's not dismissing knowledge, but he's acknowledging that there is an ignorance that is just as noble as knowledge. Uh, just as a generous, he says. Because <coughs> when we're able to rest in, I don't know, <coughs> um, we're no longer you know, locked into a particular position. <coughs> There's a kind of openness a beginner's mind in which endless possibilities and responses to a situation are available to us as soon as we say, I don't know what to do. Our, gut, our instinctive reaction is, I know what to do. An opinion immediately plants itself in our mind. Ah, oh yeah, I understand. I know what to do. Leave it to me. Whereas there's something perhaps more honest, more generous um, in being able to say, actually, I don't know. I really don't know what to do. I really don't know what's going on here. And to be able to settle and rest in that unknowing, which at the same time is also an inquiry. These are not two separate things. You, one, they all go, They go totally together what is this, is just another way of saying I don't know, and vice versa. In fact, in your practice, you might sometimes like to do that. Instead of saying what is this, say to yourself I don't know what this is, or simply I don't know. And, 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 se- and rest with that, rest with what that feels like, how that resonates or vibrates in your body and mind. Learn to somehow enjoy, perhaps even cherish not knowing. The not knowing of a child, a young child, which is so wonderful to behold. A young child walking through a garden and their eyes and their whole being just astonished by what is going on. Meditation, I feel, any kind of meditation, that somehow allows us to just let go of the emotional and the opinionated burdens we carry, can lead us into a state of physical and emotional stillness and ease in which the world appears as more radiant, more wondrous, more bewildering and we realize how profoundly ignorant we are. Montaigne called ignorance his, uh, his master form he's basically his, 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 his primary working framework for living. And he's very puzzled by how people are only astonished by what he calls miracles and strange events and and recognizes that they seem to hide themselves whenever I show up. In other words, we hear endless stories of magic and people walking through walls or doing weird things. But it's always, in my case, exactly the same as Montaigne's. It's always one step removed. Uh, It'll be, well, I didn't see it for myself, but my uncle, now my uncle, very, very honest man, he, when he was a young man, he saw this or saw that. In other words, the problem here is not only do these things endlessly recede, miracles and magical things, but um, they uh, compromise or in a sense uh, uh, conceal what is truly miraculous. And that is the fact that we're here at all. Instead, we see mystery and wonder in special, miraculous things. By contrast, Montaigne declares, I have seen nothing more weird or miraculous than myself. (laughs) Over time, he says, we get used to strange things. But the more I probe myself and know myself, the more my oddity astonishes me, and the less I understand who I am." And in, this, in the next sentence, he quotes Socrates, who he thinks of as the, you know, the sage, the wisest person who ever lived, uh, who when he was asked what he knew, replied, Socrates replied, all I know is that I know nothing. And this strangeness and weirdness is not just restricted to oneself, but it's also characteristic of everything that we come across in our lives. Montaigne says, just consider the fog through which we have to grope in order to comprehend the very things we hold in our hands. In other words, we get just like this cup of water. We're so familiar with it. It is so evidently a cup of water It's something that is so profoundly familiar that it no longer surprises us, it no longer astonishes us at all. And yet, as he says, it is familiarity rather than knowledge that takes away the strangeness of things. It's not that we know what a cup of water is that makes it look weird or unstrange. It's because we've just got used to it. And once you get used to something, as we know very well, very quickly it becomes familiar, normal, unsurprising. And that, again, is one of the challenges in this kind of practice, to constantly bring in this questioning. what is this? We're, we're in a sense, fighting against the, the weight of the familiar and the known. Of course, the familiar and the known are also very much what we feel about things when we feel bored. Boredom is, in a way, a mind that can no longer question, a mind that can no longer be amazed or surprised by the weirdness of things. Everything just appears flat dull and stubbornly what it is and there's almost something a hint almost of depression in that experience things are just what they are they're not interesting they don't engage me my life is somehow flattened out so I think the real um uh the power of this practice of questioning is to, is to break through, but perhaps more realistically, to slowly wear down and erode the, the familiar, such that more and more we go through life with a sense of its fundamental oddity and strangeness. To illustrate uh, this point, Montaigne quotes the Epicurean philosopher uh, Lucretius. Lucretius wrote a book called uh, On the Nature of Things, and it's a long poetic account of Epicurean philosophy. But a passage in there that um, struck me very powerfully when I read this text uh, also, was one that struck Montaigne powerfully too, um, which I was very gratified to read. He liked the same bit of Lucretius that I did. <laughs> uh, this is the the key line uh, here. Um, Lucretius sets up a thought experiment, and he he says, "Look you know you have to have the the, the he looks at the the sky, the stars and the moon and the sun and." the clouds, and he says, he says, imagine if these things were shown to men now for the first time, suddenly and with no warning. What could be declared more wondrous than these miracles no one before had dared believe could even exist? So the thought experiment is, imagine you've never seen the sky, imagine you've never seen a tree, you've never seen a room, ever. And then suddenly, bang, they're there. You see them for the first time. What could be more miraculous than that? What could be more miraculous than that? But because we've got, I mean, I don't have the rest of the Lucretius statement but he says we've become so familiar with these things that we do not even look up at the heavens anymore so this questioning or this inquiry into true vision has to do with finding ways we're using meditation but philosophy art, poetry the imagination, all can help us, in a sense, wake the world up, uh, to, to to break free, perhaps, from the habitual perceptions and opinions and views in which we are stuck. Now, Montaigne is well aware that what he's doing is pursuing a philosophical practice that goes back to Pirot of Ellis, the founder of skepticism. Um, Pierrot is a, is, is, a, is a primary influence on Montaigne. Um, knowledge of Pyrrho had only just resurfaced in the Renaissance at Montaigne's time, and was undergoing a kind of a, a, a wave of enthusiasm in 16th century Europe. The passage I'm going to read from Pyrrho is not one that Montaigne would have known, but it summarizes Pyrrho's philosophy, I think, particularly well in the context we're looking at it now. Pyrrho declared that things are equally indifferent, unmeasurable, and undecidable. Therefore, neither our sensations nor our opinions tell us truths or falsehoods, is or is not. We should not put our slightest trust in them, but we should be without judgment, without preference, and unwavering, saying about each thing that it no more is than is not or both is and is not or neither is nor is not. And the result for those who adopt this attitude will first be speechlessness aphatos and then untroubledness ataraxia. So here, the, the resonance with, with early Buddhism is very obvious. The resonance with Nagarjuna, the tetralemma, is, is not, both is and is not, neither is and is not. This we get in the Pali suttas. We get it in Nagarjuna's philosophy. And it appears in Pirro of Ellis. And since Pirro accompanied Alexander the Great to India, and as his sort of in-house philosopher. And the Greek records themselves describe his studying with Indian sages. Many scholars have, uh, have, have uh, um, concluded that Pirro picked up these ideas from India. It's possible. Uh, endless scholarly debate is still ongoing. I don't have an opinion about it, which I think is probably the most Pyrrhonian way to approach the question. Now for Montaigne, uh, he, for, for, uh, for Montaigne, he said, no other invention of the human mind has as much validity and utility, usefulness, as Pyrrhonism, as the philosophy of Pyrrho. He says, Pyrrhonism presents the human being naked, empty and aware of his natural weakness. Their aim, Montaigne says, is to shake things up, to doubt, to inquire, to be certain of nothing, to vouch for nothing. Again, we're clearly in the same territory as the Kachana Gotha Sutta, as the Sutta Nipata, verses of Piro, Montaigne, skepticism. We're moving along a similar path, a similar trajectory. For Montaigne, Ataraxia, this, this, this untroubledness, which is very close both to the Buddhist idea of equanimity on the one hand, but I would go further and think of it very much as a synonym of nirvana. The absence of greed, absence of hatred, absence of confusion, which is also described as shanti, as peace, as an untroubled, peaceful state of mind. That is likewise understood as being empty of reactivity empty of opinions empty of views but for montaigne ataraxia this untroubledness this uh, is also a moral or ethical quality it's he describes it ataraxia as immobility of judgment in other words the capacity to retain a sense of inner balance, immobility, as a foundation for then making choices, rather than just being pushed and pulled by one's preferences, biases, habits, and so forth. So the freedom that is um, sought here is actually a, a moral or an ethical freedom. This is Montaigne's definition of ataraxia. A peaceful and settled way of life, untroubled by the pressure of opinions and the knowledge we pretend to have of things, which give birth to fear, avarice, envy... Immoderate desires, ambition, pride, superstition, love of novelty, rebellion, opinionatedness. It sounds like a Buddhist list of things to avoid. And this philosophical skepticism that Montaigne describes and and thinks about, right throughout his essays he says can best be conceived as a question and the question that Montaigne takes as his koan is not what is this but what do I know sais-je what know I what do I know and this became Montaigne's um, uh, symbol. He uh, had it inscribed on his heraldic emblem, or below or above it, I can't remember now. Um, and he symbolizes this question as a pair of of measuring scales, which are in balance, like we see on the roof of the Old Bailey. Uh, justice is blind, Justicia, the god of just, the goddess of justice blind, but with scales that are balanced. So the, 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 the balance, or the scales, um, symbolize a commitment not to favor one opinion over any other, to be equanimous, to be balanced. And this is called by later Pyrrhonists. Epoche, suspension of judgment, which is a term that then gets picked up by Edmund Husserl and the phenomenologist in the 20th century who practiced epoche, suspending of judgment, in order to regain access to what they called the living world that lies concealed beneath opinions and categories and concepts and so on. But this is not just an ancient philosophical idea. It's one that's very much alive with us today. People like Wittgenstein are sometimes thought of as skeptics, as sort of latter-day Pyrrhonists. So Montaigne's also aware that this way of being in the world, this this questioning, not knowing, Uh, practice in which we seek this kind of immobility of judgment, this inner balance, this speechlessness, is also perhaps challenging the very foundations of our language itself, which is so embedded in the law of the excluded middle. Something either is A or it is not A. It either is or is not. If language is somehow built that way, then how can that kind of language talk about this kind of practice? So Montaigne acknowledges that Pyranists cannot express their approach to life in any known way of speaking. They need a new language, he says for ours is entirely formed of affirmative statements that are quite unacceptable to them. And Montaigne's essays, I feel, are an actual example of such a language. Uh, Montaigne's essays are continuously expanding. He's continuously adding to them. He scribbles in the margins and between the lines. He never deletes anything. He never cuts anything out. He just endlessly builds. And the essays keep sprouting new shoots. And he reflects on this writing practice as well. He says, I change subject arbitrarily and chaotically. My pen and mind roam about of their own accord. If you want less foolishness you need a touch of madness. And I'd like to end with a quotation I stumbled across by chance a couple of days ago by Elie Wiesel or Eli Wiesel, I don't know how you pronounce it. He was I think he died recently. Um, He was a a Jewish Holocaust survivor. And in this passage that um, I read, it said, could it be that questions are more important than answers? But Wiesel's reason for saying that is, I think, a bit different. He says, we have learned from history That people are united by questions. It is the answers that divide them. So there's something here about questioning that had never really occurred to me before until I read this this quote. That we all have the same questions, ultimately. You know, who am I? What is this? What is the meaning of life? What is the nature of God, etc., etc.? We we that is common across all traditions. We're all questioning beings, whether we are atheists or theists, whether we're Muslims or Jews, whether we're Buddhists or Hindus, Christians or Muslims or whatever. Questions unite us. And I would like to think of this practice too, as not just being of maybe personal benefit to you but also allowing us to open to the 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 the, 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 the innocent questioning that is present in all of our hearts uh, the childlike wonder that we all share even those people most, Alien and different from us. Probably ask exactly these same questions. Of course we all have our own opinions and views and so on. But that's precisely where we start to differ. That's where division comes in. So this true vision, this samadhiti, this commitment to questioning, this refusal to settle for is or is not, is or is not, the thing or the nothing, being or not being, that way of life, that openness to the wonder of experience is perhaps the thing that brings humanity together at the deepest point. We're all basically ignorant, and it's that ignorance that holds us perhaps together, that makes us human, in a way. Oh, I've spoken longer than I should. Um, If it's okay, I'll stop here. I'm a little tired. So there'll be a